This episode contains adult language and topics that may be disturbing for some listeners. Such topics include suicide, drug use, physical or sexual abuse of a child. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Erica. And this is From From Crime Crime to to Crime. Crime. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime. Came up with a new theme song for us, and I wanted to run it past you and see what you thought. Okay? You ready? I guess. All right. Good guys, good guys. What you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? Good guys, good guys. What do you think? Pretty good? I don't get it. Well, it's, it's called Good Guys, and it's our, you know, because we're, we're the good guys. That feels like I don't think we're gonna be able to post that, because that's like a copyright thing. Why? It's Good Guys. It's it says good guys, good guys. What's copyright? Uh, what's what would be copyright about that? I changed the lyrics. Yeah, but you, but it's a parody. It's the same tune and the same words for, except the word good. <laughs> it's to, the same words. To what? I made that up. But I don't get it. Well, I, I just I made up a theme song for us, and I thought you'd like it. It's, it's called Good Guys. Okay. <laughs> you don't like it? No, All I right. don't get it. We'll stick with Dyson's song then. That's fine. I just I thought. <laughs> I, really I thought confused. I had I thought I had something there for you. I guess not. I guess this is what happens when I make you record at seven a.m. Saturday. <laughs> Thank you. See, it's not my fault. It's yours. I like I like yeah. how, I like that segue. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that has a lot to do with what's going on right now. <laughs> well, here's why though that I had to have you record so early because this case is extremely complicated and long and I know your brain and you would not be able to focus if you we were recording this like after you had worked a full day. No, I completely agree with you. Yeah. Question, would you say that this case is bananas? Yes, this case is bananas. Does it take place during the lawless land? Yes. Oh, I like this already. And it's not completely solved. There's a lot of solved parts of it. So you'll have that like closure in your heart. But there's also still things that can be figured out so huh i know this makes you happy that i don't know what this is about but it's already kind of annoying me so yeah well buckle up let's do this well i'm also stalling because i don't even know where to start on this case (laughs) oh really yeah so we're gonna try to go chronologically but there's gonna be times where we have to sort of time travel Let's do it. Well, we're going to start in Allenstown, New Hampshire in November of 1985. Oh, okay. 85. Definitely lawless. Yep. The number one song was Can't Keep a Good Man Down by Alabama, by the way. How's that one go? Can't keep a good no, man No, we're not going to sing anything today. I don't know why you're into singing. I don't know why. After a full night's rest, I'm usually pretty good at to like sing and dance for a little bit. So okay. this, is, what, this well, is your fault. Well, get over that quickly. (laughs) So a hunter was in Bear Brook State Park and he came across a blue 55 gallon steel drum like in the woods. I'm going to go with that's probably never a good sign. Nope. So obviously he pried it open because he's like, got to see what's in here. Would you do that? Because I'm not sure I would try to. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. What, you're just going to leave it there? Uh, I don't know what's in it. And yeah, that's why you have to open it to find out. Dude, I don't know. I don't know if my stomach could handle that if it was something gnarly but i'm willing to find out if you come across a barrel anywhere but especially in the woods yes you open it so he tried to open it and a real awful smell came out of the barrel yeah that's why i wouldn't want to open it yeah 
And he also saw plastic. When he pulled back that plastic, he saw what he thought was human bones. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's obvious what was going right. to be in there. I mean, yeah. I'm not thinking yeah. it's going to be like an animal thing no. going on in there. So the police were called out. And this is not like a real big city in New Hampshire. It's kind of a rural area. So they only have one officer on duty at a time. Oh, wow. So they had to deputize local residents to help like secure the crime scene. Wow. This is really Mayberry. Yeah, that officer was like, put your hand up, Joe, and come help me. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would love that. I would love if a police officer just called me and was like, tap, tap, you're in. <laughs> yeah. Raise your right so, hand. Okay. Yeah, so this officer set up a perimeter, and they collected the barrel and the contents of the barrel, and they searched like the immediate area for anything else, but there wasn't anything else. It was just a barrel in the woods. So when they got it back to the lab and the investigators were examining the contents of the barrel, it turned out that it was not just the remains of one person. Oh. Um, yeah. That's real bad. I mean, one is bad enough. Yeah. How many people can fit in a 55-gallon drum? Like that, I would think only one person would fit in one of those, but I guess they're small. Are they small people? The kids? Yes. Ah, damn. So the barrel contained the remains of an adult woman and a child, a girl between the ages of 8 and 10. (sighs) Okay. So the victims were nude and almost completely skeletonized. They were also likely dismembered to fit into the barrel. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and they were wrapped in plastic, and that plastic was tied shut with electrical wire. Wow. So somebody did not want them to be found anytime soon. Right. Their cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma. Okay, how long did they think that they were in the barrel for before, you know, they came up and found them? Um, it was estimated that they were in the barrel for some time, between six months and a couple of years even. Really? Yeah. So they had to figure out who these two were because where else do you start in a homicide investigation? So the New Hampshire State Police came in to help because... Obviously, local citizens who have been deputized probably have never worked a murder. (laughs) Yeah, I'm guessing not. Yeah, so the New Hampshire State Police canvassed the area to see if, like, a mom and her child were missing from anywhere in the last couple of years. This was a small area, a rural area. Somebody should know who they were if they were from there, but nothing came up. Nobody knew who she was. There was no women and their child missing, nothing. So they checked missing persons reports from all around the United States and even Canada because this is New Hampshire, so it's pretty far north, but nothing matched. They checked elementary schools to see if a girl the same age like quit attending school. This is the kind of stuff that bothers me, too, is like when they check the schools and like schools have no like missing records and stuff. And I get it. They might not be from the area. I get that. But that's it's not a good sign. You know, like obviously she's already right dead, because they but... were searching more than just the immediate area. I mean, they were searching yeah. high and low, I'm sure. Multiple states, yeah. Canada, everywhere. Nothing matched. See, and that's like that's what bugs me is like when people have kids and that child's life never had a shot at being productive like that. That really gets me. Yeah. They checked campground records from the state park and tried to like track down families that had been there to see if anybody was missing. They put out press releases. They put out bulletins like nationwide. They checked dental records with the FBI. They made artists renderings and sketches of what the victims might look like nothing they got zero leads they tried everything for months eventually the months turned into years and by 1987 two years later they decided to bury the victims what else are you gonna do you know yeah 
So they buried them together in the same coffin, and their headstone read, Here lies the mortal remains known only to God of a woman aged 23 to 33 and a girl, child, aged 8 to 10. Oh my gosh. Their slain bodies were found on November 10th, 1985 in Bearbrook State Park. May their souls find peace in God's loving care. Ooh, man. That is a rough headstone. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. that Long. is a rough one to, well, yeah, definitely, but that's a rough one to come up to. Yeah. So the investigators hoped that someday someone would confess or somebody would file a missing persons report, like, years later that would match up, that they might get some sort of new lead to follow, but that never happened. So the victims were still not identified 15 years later in 2000 when a detective named John Cody made it to the major crimes unit of the New Hampshire State Police. And apparently their policy in the major crimes unit is new investigators get signed a couple of old cases that they're supposed to like kind of re-look at and re-examine in their downtime. I dig that. So John was assigned the Bear Brook case. Can we stop and- for a minute and talk about how John Cody sounds like he could be like a country singer or like cowboy or something like that just sounds like a real western name yeah but instead he's a real good detective in new hampshire (laughs) i was gonna say it's not a very new hampshire name but (laughs) yeah so he started studying the bear brook case looking at crime scene photos reading the case file just really diving in like the more he read the more he was like how in the hell do we not know who these two girls are like this woman and this child like there's no way that we don't know so he goes to the evidence room and looked at the barrel in person and the plastic and the cord like he was really diving into this case and he decided that he needed to go out to the crime scene you know out to Bearbrook State Park so he could get a feel for where the barrel was left I like this idea of like assigning new detectives to older cases one so new fresh eyes can get on it and and a newer detective wants to prove that you know, they can do yeah. this job. So I like this a lot. This is a good idea. So kudos yeah, to, idea. to New Hampshire State Police. Yeah. So he went out to Bearbrook State Park and, of course, 15 years later and just from a case file, he wasn't there when they were originally found. So he's kind of like tooling around the woods trying to figure out where this would have been based on photos and stuff. And he comes across another 55-gallon blue steel drum. Whoa. Yeah, and he's like, Uh uh-oh, that looks like the exact same barrel I just saw in the evidence room. And he was only like 300 feet from where the first barrel was found. Yeah, so he's like, okay, there's probably more out here than these two then. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a scary thought. It's got to be your first thought. Like, if there's two, there's got to be more. Yeah, but I think at first, his first thought was probably like, hopefully this is a coincidence. (laughs) (laughs) you know yeah so i'm I'm not guessing a a really good detective is thinking that but no so he pried open the lid and sure as shit same plastic he just saw in the evidence room same electrical cord so now he's shitting himself he's like oh fuck so he opens up the plastic and of course inside he finds human bones oof Like you said, as a pretty good detective, which obviously he is, his thought is like, okay, a serial killer is dumping his victims out here. 
we found yeah. one 15 years ago and now we're finding another one the same exact circumstances like it's got to be a killer who's this is where he dumps his bodies well it turns out once they examine it the second barrel contained the remains of two more children both girls one of the girls was about two and the other one was about three same exact circumstances as the first barrel they were skeletal blunt force trauma was their cause of death and it turns out that this barrel was there the whole time yeah i believe that i was kind of already thinking that yeah it was dumped at the same time as the first barrel with the adult woman and the oldest child so the second barrel had two younger girls and the other barrel had an adult woman and an older child so they were 300 feet apart so of course everybody's first like reaction is why in the hell didn't they find it the first time then right i mean what were you doing How did you not stumble upon that? Again, I mean, they canvassed the area, so... Well, I'm sure it probably had partially to do with the fact that the people securing the crime scene were like, you know, your next-door neighbor, Jim, and your plumber, Gary, that were deputized (laughs) that afternoon. You know what I mean? I mean, that's probably not great. That's a really good point. I I forgot that. That we were dealing with Mayberry. But then the other thing, too, is that 300 feet in a really densely wooded area probably seems a lot farther than, like, 300 feet, you know, in an open area. Hmm. That's a good point. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because something 300 feet away in an open area, you could visibly see it. But 300 feet away in a densely wooded area, you're not going to be able to see it at all. So unless they actually did searches of the woods, which obviously you would think they would have done, but apparently not but like you said like they're they're not dealing with a, they're not playing with a full deck of you know actual detectives or police even who have been through training and know what to look for like they're just kind of tyson's asking people around the community are you ready and they're going yeah sure i got nothing else going on yeah and in in their defense too i mean they didn't even have a lot of murders in this area so why would they assume that there would be more barrel like they assume somebody killed their wife and daughter like that's uh it's a good point yeah that's a really good point they're not thinking serial killer huh they're thinking yeah they were thinking just it was one barrel yeah so the only good thing about this barrel being found 15 years later is that by 2000 dna is a thing now oh good in 85 that was like a pipe dream i mean they knew about dna but they weren't really using it what yeah 85 yeah yeah it's yeah still, like, it was on the verge like it was coming yeah they knew it course. was coming too and that's this is around the time too we see them start to save evidence for the future of dna right but by 2000 dna is a real thing so now at least they had more avenues to investigate this second barrel than they did the first one they still did the same things they did with the first one checking now they had to check for a woman and three children instead of a woman and one child they had more avenues to investigate is the point plus the original avenues that they investigated on the first one. Once the DNA results were in, though, that complicated things a little bit more because it turns out the adult woman was maternally related to the oldest child that she was found in the barrel with and the youngest child of the other barrel, but not the middle child. Huh, interesting. So she was most likely their mother, but could have also been a sister or an aunt, something very close. The DNA was not as precise back then yeah okay now that they knew this and they had the second barrel they started the investigation over from the beginning the exact same thing that they did on the first one they spent years tracking down all these new leads tons of missing persons reports tons of school records different things but they ended up in the exact same spot as the first barrel 
And now they had two barrels and four victims and no identities. Well, shit. Yeah. So the Bear Brook murders go cold again. After a few years, they just, they're they're like, what else can we do? There's nothing else we can do. Well, internet sleuths got pretty obsessed with it because it's like, how do four people get found and we can't figure out who any, like these people had to have families. They had to know people. Maybe the youngest two kids, maybe not, but like the woman was an adult and her oldest child was eight or 10 years old. Absolutely. I mean, unless they're living in a very <laughs> rural area with no other nobody else around, like yeah, somebody's got to know these kids at this point. Right. So, internet sleuths kind of got a hold of it, messages, messaging boards like web sleuths and stuff speculated pretty hard about the the Bearbrook murders or the Allentown 4 as they're also known. And these web sleuths would spend hours trying to ID these victims, but nothing happens significantly until another 15 years pass. And in 2015, the New Hampshire authorities hold a press conference to announce that they have some new info. And some people speculated that they had identified the victims, but they hadn't. They presented new composite images of the victims that were done by NECMEC, which is always good. But they also announced that they had done isotope testing on the victim's hair and bones and teeth. Which is also good. Yeah. And these isotopes can narrow down where a victim might have lived during their life, like where they're from. And it's real scientific. Oh, yeah, it is. It's super scientific, but it's super interesting stuff. Yeah. And we're not going to get into the scientific part of it. If you would like to, there's tons of stuff on the internet. And there's also a really good podcast called Bear Brook that breaks down the specific science of these isotopes that were used in this case. Oh, I'd, I'd actually really like to hear that. So maybe I'll go listen to that one after season one episode three they literally give examples of the specific isotopes and how like leaded gas and other isotopes like narrowed down between the world like narrowed it down to just a few places in the united states so i guess your body carries these isotopes in your teeth and your hair and your bones and like your teeth are isotopes from when you were little because they stopped creating that at some point and your hair is more like recent isotopes because your hair grows constantly wow that's really cool yeah so in the end the gist of what they figure out is that the adult victim the oldest child and the youngest child so the related ones shared similar isotopes so they likely lived together for the children's entire life but the middle child that wasn't related had different isotopes from her childhood. Okay. And then and then she had similar ones to the other victims closer to their murders. So she didn't grow up with them is right. what they pretty much figure out. She okay. joined the family later. Joined the family or was abducted? Yes, or adopted. Or adopted would be or good too. A stepchild. Some somehow <laughs> she joined this family later. You'd think I'd think of all of those. I literally have both of those in my family. Like my immediate yeah. family. I have an adopted kid and I have a stepson. And yeah. I'm like, no, maybe these other ideas. And it's like, dude, just yeah. go with the easy ones. Yep. So the adult and the two related kids were likely from or spent time in either New England, West Virginia, the upper Midwest, or the West Coast. The middle child's isotopes pointed to either upstate New York, Maine, Vermont, or the Vermont-New Hampshire border and different areas of the Midwest and the West Coast than the other victims. But these isotopes showed that they were all together for two weeks to three months prior to their deaths. No way. It can show like that down to like how closely related it is. That's amazing. Yeah, dude. Who would have ever... Like, how are, how are there unsolved 
things out in the world. I know. Like, we have so much info. It's because people don't upload their DNA to GEDmatch. That's why. If everybody Boom. did that, there would be no unsolved crimes. Don't forget to enter your DNA to GEDmatch. So nothing still with these isotopes except that it narrows... It helps, like, web sleuths, I guess, narrow search areas down to specific areas. Well, and the regular investigators, too. <laughs> yeah, them too. <laughs> yeah. But in the meantime, the case goes cold. 30 years, four Jane Doe's, no answers. Just nothing. It's amazing that this kind of stuff happens, right? Like, yeah. no answers at all. Yep. So now put a pin in that. Yeah, because you said there were answers now that I'm thinking about it. So now I'm getting kind of yeah. excited again. Yeah. Well, put a pin in that story. We're going back a few years now to Y2K. Y2K. Oh, yeah. I remember this. Yes. It's a big thing. Yep. Will 2K. So we're going to talk about a lady named Unsoon June. Here it comes. Party of a lifetime. 31st of December. Man, I remember. <laughs> yeah, <when>. okay. <laughs> I was Stop waiting. it with the singing. I said Will 2K and you didn't even acknowledge it, so I had I know, no other choice. I... I had no other choice. That's on you. I had to do right. it. You're right. So we're going to talk about a lady named Unsoon Jun. She was a chemist originally from Korea, but living and working in Richmond, California, which is up by San Francisco. I know someone who lives there. Oh, good. So Unsoon Jun is described as a free spirit. Obviously, she was smart and scientific and stuff. She was a chemist, but she was also very independent and very creative, super into pottery and loved to travel. Her only bummer, it seemed like, was that she didn't have a lot of luck in the love department. Mm. Yeah, she had a hard time connecting with anybody. Been there, man. Like that. I get you, Unsoon. Yeah. So by New Year's Eve, 1999, she had told her friends and family that she had finally met someone and that she was really like in love. She had needed work done on her house, so she hired a handyman and somehow they hit it off and started dating. So she brought her new boyfriend to New Year's Eve at her cousin Elaine's house for the first time. His name was Larry Vanner. He made quite the impression. He was drinking a lot, but everybody was. It was New Year's Eve. But he also was very unkempt. He had like greasy long hair, long dirty fingernails, just looked gross. And that really kind of turned them off. He belched at the table. He ate like a pig. He didn't have any manners. And when anybody would ask him about himself, like, you know, you're the new guy in the group. You're Unsun's new boyfriend. Like, we're going to ask you what you do for a living. He told them he was a retired colonel in the military, but then snapped and didn't want to talk about that, like, at all. He told them that? Or he would snap and be like, I don't want to talk about it, like that? Yes. Like, oh, okay. so one of her friends was like, oh, my boss is a retired colonel in the military. And he's like, well, it's none of your business. I don't want to talk about it. Like, oh, bro, you brought it up. That's super funny. Like, oh, you, ha I yeah. have a connection to that. Like, ah, don't talk about it then. Yeah, it was really awkward. So her cousin said she showed up in this dirty white van that was obviously his van. That wasn't Unsoon's car. And she just got the GBs from Larry. I don't know if you remember, but do you know what Christopher Lloyd's character looks like in Dennis the Menace? Because that's exactly yes. what I'm picturing right now. Yes. Yes. Very close. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, great. Good one. Yes. <laughs> So her friends and family tried to warn her about being careful with this guy because they saw big red flags. They were like, first of all, he's yuck. Second of all, he's kind of a dick. And third of all, I think he's lying about who he is. Like, <laughs> right, like I don't think he's a retired. <laughs> trust me, a retired colonel from the military. Like you would know. Yeah. They, they have a certain air about them. Well, even after they're retired, they don't go slovenly. Like that's kind of the thing. Yeah. And 
they definitely want to talk about it. Like, that's all they want to talk about. Yeah, 100%. So, anyway, they saw the big red flags, but it just drove a wedge between them and Unsoon because she thought everybody was just kind of sabotaging her and didn't want her to be happy. So her communication with them kind of started to dwindle. And she would even email them to, like, leave her alone, and she didn't want anything to do with them anymore. It was really kind of sad. They were like, well, this sucks. Like, she finally gets a boyfriend, and she's in love, and we hate him, and now we don't get to talk to her. So in 2002, Unsoon and Larry got married in a Star Trek-themed wedding in their backyard. Hell yeah, they did. (laughs) Yeah. Man, that's pretty cool. Like, in the nerdiest way possible, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So most of her family wasn't invited to this wedding because they were kind of estranged by this point. But her friend Renee was there because they kept in touch. Her friend Renee was, like, her best friend, and she put up with Larry's bullshit because she's like, no, and soon's my friend. I'm not going to, like, not be friends with her because I don't like you. And also, somebody needs to keep an eye on her. Like, you know, her family's yeah. out. Somebody needs to watch what's going on with her. Exactly. This homeless guy from, home- from Dennis the Menace. Yeah. So her friend Renee kept in touch until May of 2002. Renee called her to talk about their plans for the next week. They had like some outing planned and Unsoon sounded like anxious and in a hurry on the phone and she ended the call abruptly and she's like, I'll call you tomorrow. I gotta go. And so Renee was like, oh, that was kind of weird. That's not like her. And then she never called. She didn't show up to their plans the next week. Renee left voicemails on Unsoon's answering machine. She was like, what the hell is going on here? Like, just out of nowhere, Unsoon vanished. And after a few days, Larry finally called Renee back. Uh, It's not a good sign. (laughs) Nope. But he did have a reason. He said that Unsoon's mother got really sick suddenly, and she had to fly home to take care of her. And home is Korea, correct? No, her mother lived in Virginia. Oh, okay. Renee was like, okay, well, can I have the phone number to where her mom is? I'd like to call her and see how everything's going. You know, it's her best friend. Sure. Like- Yeah. And this is 2002. So this is before everybody had a phone in their pocket. You know, she needed like her mom's home number. (laughs) Yeah. And Larry said there was no number. He couldn't talk to her. She'd let her know that she was trying to get a hold of her and they'd figure it out later. So this goes on for weeks. And Renee would call Larry all the time. And Larry's story started to change. She said that Unsoon came home from Virginia, but then she had a mental breakdown because her mom had passed. And then he had to check her into a facility in Oregon because she was suicidal and depressed. And none of this made any sense. And Renee was like, what are you talking about? Eventually, Larry would try to tell Renee that Unsoon just didn't want to be friends with her anymore, and he had been (laughs) trying to let her down easy. That's how it works. Yeah. She's like, well, then Unsoon needs to get on the phone and tell me that we're not friends anymore. So Renee's no dummy. She's like, this doesn't make sense. So eventually, she gave Larry like an ultimatum. She was like, I'm giving you 10 days. If I don't get a call from Unsoon in the next 10 days, I'm calling the police. And the call never came. So she called the police. Fair. That's, I mean, 10 days, that's still probably too long. You'd give them 10 minutes. Yeah. But communication is different now than it was then. That different, though? I mean, I understand if she thought that she was in Virginia dealing with her sick mom and she didn't want to bother her. Like, I can understand how it went on for a little longer than it would now with cell phones. Yeah. So the police bring Larry in and they're like, hey, uh, your wife's friends are pretty worried about your wife. So... You got to tell us where she is. He sat in the interview room and was like, yeah, it's none of your business. (laughs) Pretty good. And they're like, well, but we need you to produce her so that we can make sure she's okay." And he's like, yeah, you're not my priest or my doctor, so I don't have to tell you shit. Wow. And they're like, Larry, we're the fucking cops, man. You have to tell us where your wife is. You're like in deep shit. 
Yeah, man. Like, do you not know how this works? Yeah. Otis? Seems like Otis the town drunk. Yeah, so he said a bunch of made-up shit. Like, he was telling wild stories and weird stuff. Like, he talked for hours but didn't say shit about Unsoon or where she was or anything except little bits here and there about how she was in a mental health facility in Oregon. And he even used the phone to call a mental health facility in Oregon. But then when the police tracked that down based on the number he called, she wasn't there. So it was like, how did he know that number by heart? That's kind of weird. Yeah, that is pretty weird. Yeah, so while they were interviewing him, they tried to look him up, you know, on his ID, Larry Vanner, but nothing was hitting. They were like, this isn't this guy's name. Oh my God, all right. So they were like, hey, Larry, can we fingerprint you? And he's like, yeah, of course. So while they interviewed him, his prints came back, but not to Larry Vanner. Duh. We now know this guy's a freaking liar. On top of being most likely a murderer, what was his name? What did it come back as? Okay, they came back to a man with a list of aliases. Yes, I knew that was going to happen. I didn't say it, but I knew it was coming. Yeah, so Larry Vanner's prince came back to a Curtis Mayo Kimball, and he was wanted on a parole violation from like 15 years before. I like when people have aliases with middle names too. Right? They really stuck to it. And he's yeah. like Mayo, like I'm going to make people think I'm part of the Mayo Clinic. I'm sure that was part of what he why he chose that. Yeah, 100%. Either that or he's a big fan of mayonnaise. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> he looks like he'd be a big fan of mayonnaise. <laughs> uh, there is a there is a mayonnaise look, so I kind of I kind of know what you're saying here. Yeah. So because Curtis Kimball was on parole and wanted for skipping parole, is they he were able to, to search Jimmy Kimball by any chance. No. Okay. So they were able to search his house without a warrant because he's on parole and he's wanted. Well, that's convenient. Yeah, totally. So in the back of the garage, in like this weird step-down crawl space area, they found a huge pile of kitty litter. It's been described as enough to fill the bed of a truck. Like oh. a lot of kitty litter. That That's an excessive amount of kitty litter for anybody. Yep. So around the kitty litter, they found saws and axes... Oh, shit. But inside the kitty litter, once they started sifting through it, the first thing they came across was a mummified foot with a flip-flop still on it. What? Yeah. So once the scene was processed, they found blood splatter above where the kitty litter was in the crawl space. And in the kitty litter, they found the remains of Unsoon Jun. No way. Was he... Did he put her in the kitty litter, like, kind of soak out, I guess, and, like... Well, they have her mummified based on the blood splatter in the crawl space and the fact that she had been dismembered. They figured that he probably covered her in kitty litter to either cover the smell or to soak up the blood or to just figure out what his next move was. Did did kitty litter accomplish all of that? Yes, that is. Wow. It mummified her and it covered the smell and covering the smell is is what really amazes me yeah because i know people with cats and you can smell they got cats you're talking about me and that's rude but no i'm talking about everybody that's ever owned a cat no it's cool they're always like oh my house doesn't smell like cats it's like yeah it does yeah sometimes i don't care how good your kitty litter is and sometimes the cats poop and it stinks real bad but yeah that's why i'm so surprised i mean i get it it's a ton of kitty litter and i will say too we also use the organic kitty litter that like yeah which doesn't work as well it it doesn't work as well but it works Matter of opinion. If I was going to do this to a body, I guess I'd go with the real stuff. But damn, like I did expect, I totally expected it to absorb, you know, the moisture and stuff. I did not expect it to cover up. But also by the time the investigators found her, she was mummified and she had been missing for a long time. 
So maybe it didn't mask the smell in the beginning. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's Who true. would know? Him. Yeah. So Curtis Kimball was arrested immediately and charged with Unsoon's murder. The trial started and everything was kind of coming out about what he had done and the dismemberment, all that stuff, but also about how he like isolated Unsoon from her family, that he was probably the one that was sending the emails to everybody saying to leave her alone and stuff like that, that it probably wasn't ever her. It was probably him, which is really sad. Yeah. And did anybody expect it not to be? Because I was pretty yeah. positive it wasn't her. No, I think everybody kind of expected that. But the thing that they didn't expect, actually, was all of the sudden, in the middle of the trial, against his lawyer's advice, Curtis stood up and told the judge he wanted to plead guilty to murder. Oh. Just- Yeah. And and went the opposite way of his lawyer's advice. That's good. I like that. Yeah. Kind of baffled everybody, because he took a 15-year-to-life sentence. He was just like, yeah, I did it. Let's move on. <laughs> Okay. And everybody was like, well, that's weird. Why would he do that? Like, that's not a normal. Like, if you're going to take a plea deal, you're going to do it before you go to trial, not like right in the middle of it. Did he make the plea deal with the defense, like just in the middle of this? He was just like, all right, I'll take it. He just kind of said he did it and was like, I want to move on. I guess I guess if they make you a plea deal, can I guess they can leave it on the table and you can just kind of. Yeah, I guess. As, I don't know. As it comes. Yeah. But it also turns out that the police were learning a lot about Curtis Kimball and his crimes. And it seems like he wanted them to stop digging into his past. And that might have been why he said, OK, I killed my wife. Like, send me to jail. We're done. Because he wanted them to stop looking into uh, his past. Oh, shit. There's more to this guy. Oh, yeah. Not even close. All right. So the investigators didn't stop, which is good. Yeah, especially because he just stopped the entire like proceedings and they were like, huh, we were just getting into him and he wanted to stop. I'm glad somebody saw enough to be like, that's probably a red flag. Yeah, and it was specifically one detective from Contra Costa County. She was like, I don't like that. I don't like anything about this. The biggest thing that she didn't like was the charge that got him on parole to begin with. Under the Curtis Kimball name, it was a charge for child abandonment. Looking further into that, she found out that in 1986, he was living in a camper shell, like on the back of a truck, at an RV park in Scotts Valley, California, with his five-year-old daughter, Lisa. And he was working as the park handyman, and he was living under the alias Gordon Jensen. Gordon Jensen. Yes. I don't like that name. Yeah. So Gordon and Lisa Jensen. There was also a couple, an older couple, that was staying like temporarily in the park. The guy had a job with the state. So they lived in San Bernardino and then he would go up to that RV park and work for a couple weeks and then go home. And they took a liking to Lisa. They felt bad for her because of her living conditions in this tiny camper. And she was super skinny. She had no toys. She always seemed like dirty. And so they started spending a lot of time with her at the RV park and him. And he had told them that her mom had died in a car accident and he was having a hard time adjusting to being a single father. They opened up to him that their daughter and her husband were having trouble conceiving a child and they were looking to adopt. So he agreed to let them take Lisa to their daughter's house in San Bernardino on a trial run. Like, take her for a couple weeks. If it works out and it's a good fit, then come back and we'll sign the adoption papers and you can have her, pretty much. Don't like any of this. No, this is not how this normally goes. Right. But they take her anyway. And within days, Lisa started to show signs of extreme abuse. Oh. She started 
touching the son-in-law inappropriately, and she started telling them what Curtis, Gordon, had done to her. So the couple took her to the police, like, right away, and she was interviewed, and it became clear that she had been extremely sexually abused and tortured by Curtis. She also told stories that she had siblings who died in the woods because they ate grass mushrooms. Wow. So when the investigators went back up to the RV park to talk to Gordon and be like, excuse me, why? first of all, why are you giving your kid away? Second of all, why does she have all these stories? God, if you have to start a conversation with, hey, why are you giving your kid away? Either A, it yeah. better be a joke, or B, you better be going to jail. And also, why has she been extremely sexually abused? When they showed up to this RV park, Gordon was gone. Just gone, moved out, left. So they tried to identify this guy because Gordon Jensen was obviously not a real name. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so when they talked to the people at the RV park, like, was there anything that he touched that nobody else touched or anything? They told him that he had installed the security system. So they pulled the panels off of, like, the video system, and they found his prints inside. And his prints came back to Curtis Mayo Kimball, who was arrested for drunk driving in Cypress, California, a while before this, with Lisa in the car. So once they knew his name was Curtis Kimball, they issued a warrant, and Curtis was now on the run. They took Lisa into foster care, and eventually she was adopted, and that was kind of where it sat for a while. But a few years later, he was arrested in California for driving a stolen vehicle in San Luis Obispo, and the vehicle was from Idaho, and he gave them the name Gerald Mockerman. But when his prints came back, God, they how came many back- names does this guy have? This is already, we're already at four. A zillion. We're going to talk about more. So when his prints came back, though. They came back to Curtis Kimball, who was wanted for abandoning his daughter and for the molestation charges. So they arrested him. But because he pled guilty instead of going to trial, he got the molestation and the stolen vehicle charge knocked off. And he was only convicted for the child abandonment. And he got three years in prison, but he only served a year and a half and then was let out on parole. Yeah, I don't like that. Yeah. So when he was let out on parole, that's when he bounced. He never even checked in once with his parole officer. And then he shows up years later as Larry, married to Unsoon, and then he gets arrested for her murder. So now we figure out why he's living under the Larry Vanner name, because obviously he was wanted as Curtis Kimball for abandoning his child. Well, for parole violations after he was released for abandoning his child. See, this is why I call it the lawless land. Like, you can just change your name. Like, you did something wrong, uh, and you're somebody else, you know? Yeah. It's like John List. I think he did the exact same thing. Yeah. So now after learning all this, that detective who was like, we need to figure out what's going on with this guy. She's like, this is a wild story. And she thinks Curtis Kimball is even an alias, but she can't prove it. But now that she knows that he killed his current wife, Unsoon, she's like, oh, my God, what if he killed Lisa's mom? What if she didn't die in a car accident? Oh, What if he killed her mom? And she figured he was living under the alias Gordon Jensen and Larry Vanner, so she thought Curtis Kimball was an alias too. And so she's like, obviously Lisa Jensen was not her real name because Gordon Jensen wasn't even his name. Right. So she's like, we got to figure out who Lisa is and figure out who her mom is so we can try to see if he did something to her mom. So they had a blood sample from Lisa from the abandonment and molestation trial. But because he pled guilty, they never ran the test. They never ran the paternity test. 
But now that he had been convicted of Unsun's murder, his DNA was in the system, and they had this blood sample of Lisa's. So this detective, like 15 years later, after she was abandoned and then taken into foster care and adopted by another family, she ran a paternity test, and it turned out that Curtis was not her father. Yeah, I saw that coming, too. Yeah. So obviously now they have a Jane, a living Jane Doe, and he's just her kidnapper. They don't even know where she came from. Jeez. What an absolute mess and like a nightmare of all this stuff to happen. Yeah. So they did everything they could to try to identify Lisa. All the usual routes. You know, she'd been living as a Jane Doe, but she didn't know that. They just called her and was like, hey, you're not who you think you are. And here's how we know. So they try to find missing persons reports from all over the country, try to match it up. None of the DNA lines up. They even interviewed Curtis in prison, who was zero help. He was just like, oh, yeah, I was a drunk back then. They said I abandoned a kid, but I don't even remember having a kid. So I don't know. Yeah, I completely imagine that. Why would he be? Yeah. So all the roads to find out who Lisa was and what happened to her were leading nowhere. They tracked down all the toddlers in the country that were missing and got DNA and ruled all of them out. It was getting frustrating. So for over 11 years, Lisa went as a Jane Doe. And then one day she called the investigators and she's like, hey, what if I did like an ancestry test? You know how like you can take do your DNA and then it can tell you if you have relatives? Like, what if I tried that? And the investigators were like, yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? So... They put her on a few of the Ancestry websites, like 23andMe, Ancestry, all that. And they only got really, really distant relatives. So they contacted a lady named Barbara Ray Venter, who helped people, adopted people, find their birth families through their genealogy. So they built up her family tree all the way back to the most common ancestor with all these people that she was distantly related to, and then built it back down to narrow in on who she was and who her mother might be. So this is commonly known now as genetic genealogy, investigative genetic genealogy. But at the time, they were just trying to figure out who Lisa was. So eventually this led to finding her maternal relatives, including grandparents. And they were given DNA test and it was confirmed that they were Lisa's grandparents. And her mother's name was Denise Bode and Lisa's birth name was Dawn. So now that they had her mom's name, they started looking into her past and what went on. And it turns out her mother went missing with six-month-old Dawn from New Hampshire in 1981 after she brought her new boyfriend to Thanksgiving dinner, oh, which is geez. very similar to yeah. Unsun's story. They didn't like the new boyfriend, and she kind of drifted away from her family after that and then disappeared with that boyfriend, whose name was Bob Evans. So when investigators showed pictures of Curtis Kimball to her, to Denise's family, they were like, yeah, that's her boyfriend, Bob Evans. And so they were like, awesome. Another fucking alias. <laughs> like, <laughs> just what Jesus. we were looking for. Yeah. So identifying Lisa was a big step in genetic genealogy, though. She was like one of the first Jane Doe's ever identified using that method. So that was kind of a big deal. And a case manager at NECMEC who had been on the Bear Brook case, you know, the bodies in the barrels in New right. Hampshire. Yeah. This case manager thought this guy who is known to kill his girlfriends, one goes missing less than 20 minutes from where we found these bodies in Bear Brook. Like she started to put the pieces together like, oh my gosh, what if this is that little girl's mom? And then other children. Remember, she said her siblings died in, in the woods by eating grass mushrooms. Yeah. I was thinking about that too, because it's a little suspect. Yeah. So they run the DNA on the Bear Brook case against the DNA of Denise's family and Lisa, but there was no match. The bodies in the barrels at Bear Brook State Park were not Lisa's mother, Denise, and the girls were not related to her genetically. 
How the hell did these guys link up then? Well, the no match to Denise was kind of a bummer, but the new DNA test did find out that the middle child that wasn't genetically related to the mom and the two daughters was the biological daughter of Curtis Kimball. What? Yeah. The middle child that wasn't related to right. the woman and so the other two kids it was... is this guy's daughter. Oh, I didn't think he was going to actually have any biological kids. So with this new clue, they now know that Bob Evans is Curtis Kimball, Larry Vanner. It's all the same guy. So they were able to track down Bob Evans' life in New Hampshire. And it turned out he arrived in New Hampshire in 1979 using the alias Bob Evans. And he got a job deconstructing a mill. And he worked with a guy who owned the store that was near the park. And he that guy used to let people dump trash on the property where the barrels were found. So they, they linked him by DNA to the unrelated child in the barrel. But also everything fits that he probably put these barrels in those woods. Yeah. He was also arrested a few times while he was in New Hampshire for stealing electricity and writing bad checks. And he listed his spouse as Elizabeth Evans, which obviously was probably an alias because Bob Evans wasn't even his real name. <laughs> right. But they didn't know who this woman was. And by the time he was arrested at the end of 1980, she was no longer being listed on his paperwork as a spouse, which would line up with the estimated timeline of when the Allenstown four were murdered. Oh, so okay, all right, cool. So we're we're yeah. zeroing in. We're getting this guy. He's we're starting to lock him down. Exactly, and they know the middle child is his daughter, so they're pretty confident in 2017 now that Bob Evans, Curtis Kimball, Larry Vanner was the murderer of the Allenstown four. They couldn't confirm it with him because he died seven years before in 2010. He died in California in prison, but they're pretty confident. Yeah, well. I mean, all these things really seem to add up and, you know, with the evidence that goes with it and the DNA testing and the isotope testing that goes with it. Yep. It all makes sense. Yeah. So investigators were like, hey, we can't talk to Bob, Curtis, Larry guy, but we found out who Lisa was and who her missing mother was through this genetic genealogy. I wonder if we can find out who Bob Evans is. And Barbara Ray Venter was like, yeah, I mean, probably. So she started looking into who he was using investigative genealogy, and she would end up identifying him as Terry Peter Rasmussen. Another name. I knew another one was coming for this guy. But this is his real name because she identified oh. him using genetic genealogy. Oh, Like okay, she traced cool. him back to when he was born. Finally. Hey, isn't Bob Evans the name of the prosecutor in um, the Curtis Flowers case, too? That's a real big douchebag. Oh, I think it is, actually. (laughs) You kept saying Bob Evans, and I was like, that sounds so familiar. And I think that's where we heard it from. We highly recommend the In the Dark podcast, especially season two. Yeah. So she would end up identifying him as Terry Peter Rasmussen. And fun fact, he was the first murderer that was ever identified using genetic genealogy. In 2017. Really? Yeah. Wow. First of obviously many, but wow, that's that's quite the claim to fame. So she found out that he was born in Denver, bounced around California and Arizona a little bit. Then he joined the Navy for a couple of years where he was trained as an electrician. Then he got married, had four kids, but he was super abusive to his wife and kids. So they got divorced. He disappeared for a couple of years before popping up in New Hampshire under the name Bob Evans, which is where he was in 1981 when Lisa's mom went missing. Okay, cool. So it's all starting to kind of come together on this guy. His circle is starting to close in on him. So by now, they've identified him. He was convicted of Unsun's murder. They've identified Lisa. 
as Dawn. Her mother, Denise, is still missing, presumed dead, and they're pretty sure he killed the four Jane Doe's in the Bear Brook case. They've identified one of those Jane Doe's as his daughter, but they don't know who her mother is either, or what happened to her mother, and who the adult and the two children victims were, and what happened to them. So there's still a lot of unknowns, right? Yeah. So Barbara Ray Venter was trying to use genetic genealogy to trace the mom and the two daughters that were found in the barrels, like she did with Lisa and Terry. But the DNA was really contaminated with bacteria, so it was extremely difficult to get a genetic profile. Until a new technique of getting DNA through rootless hair was discovered. Yeah, doing it without having to have the root? Yeah. Yeah. It was a very new technique. Like, before you always had to have the root. So now this came out, and it would take a lot of months of her working with the scientist who discovered that you could get DNA from rootless hair. But eventually they would be able to get a genetic profile that they could upload to GEDmatch to start the search for the for the unidentified family. But in the meantime, a web sleuth named Becky came across a posting on a message board from 2000 where somebody was looking for their half-sister that was born in the mid-1970s and they said that the sister's mom had died in a car accident. So Becky kind of hit a like a ding, 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 because that was one of the lies that Rasmussen used for what happened to Lisa's mom was that she died in a car accident. Right. So Becky searched the mother's name in death records and couldn't find a car accident for the mother or a death certificate or anything. Then there was a reply on that post in 2003 from a man looking for his sister and her two kids. And he thought his sister might be the mom that died in the car accident that the original poster was talking about. So this gets Becky's hackles up because she's like, wait a second, a mother and her two daughters? Now we have something that matches the Bear Brook case. So she starts searching the person these posters were talking about, and she finds the date of birth for her and her two kids and all the ages match up to the Jane Doe's from the Bear Brook case. God, it's all coming together, finally. Yeah. So she posted about it on like a web sluice thread, but nobody really responded. Like nobody was like, yeah, I think you're onto something. So she just kind of shelved it. She's like, oh, maybe I'm crazy. So a few years later, the podcast Bear Brook that I talked about earlier, it's a great in-depth podcast on this case, came out. And while she was listening to their episode about the isotope results, she realized that the isotope results matched everything for that family that she had found a couple of years before. And she's like, I think I just got to turn this in, like this tip in, like even though people think I'm crazy, like I got to just do it. Before she turned the tip in, she reached out to the original poster from 2000 and 2003 was the other response. And what year? We're in like current, like 2017. Okay. That's kind of what I thought. So I was like, damn, like that's really going out there asking that this person is still around on. So she reaches out to them and asks them for any more information about their missing loved one, like where she went missing from, what were the circumstances. And they told her that the family has wondered for years what happened to her and her daughters. They said that she had brought a boyfriend home. And the boyfriend's name was Terry. Ooh, there we go. And it was the same story as Denise and Unsoon. The family didn't like him. It caused a rift between her and her family, and she kind of drifted away from them. And then at Thanksgiving in 1978, she brought him to her mom's house in La Puente, California with her two kids. And her and her mom got into an argument, and she left with her boyfriend, Terry, and nobody had seen her since. So Becky submitted the tip right away because she's like, this can't be a coincidence. A mom, her two daughters, her boyfriend was this guy. So she submitted the tip and at the exact same time, 
Barbara Ray Venter, the genealogist, had just uploaded the genetic profile into GEDmatch. She hadn't even had time to start working on the family tree when she got the names from Becky's tip. So she started there. And instead of building this big family tree and trying to figure it out, she just confirmed that Becky's tip was correct based on her genetic genealogy. Wow. So they identified the three remaining victims simultaneously like through a web sleuth doing like crazy hard work and a genealogist like at the exact same time after 30 something years isn't that wild that's so nuts like just trying to think of all like that is absolutely crazy stuff yeah so the victim's name was marlise elizabeth honeychurch and her two daughters were marie vaughn and sarah mcwaters their last names weren't honeychurch too no they had Two different fathers. Oh, I just, I really like the last name Honeychurch. Yeah. But Marlise could be the Elizabeth Evans that was listed on his arrest paperwork because her middle name was Elizabeth. So Ooh. she could have been going by Elizabeth Evans when they first moved to New Hampshire. Yeah. So, or Elizabeth could be a totally other woman that they haven't even identified yet. So they do know that three quarters of the victims of the Allenstown Four have now been identified the mom and the two daughters. But there's still a lot of stuff that they don't know. Like, was Marlise Elizabeth Evans or was there another woman? Where's Lisa's mother, Denise? Did he kill her too? Yes. There are missing years in his timeline where we have no idea what alias he was using or where he was living. So there could be more victims. There is. They don't know who Terry's daughter is, the middle unrelated child. They have no idea who she is. And they don't know who her mother is. Did he kill her mother too? Yeah, probably. Yeah. This is what he does. He just moves from place to place doing the same thing. It works yeah, for him. Yeah, targeting single mothers and then killing them. Should have been more like me and married a single mother. Now, see, <laughs> that's respectable. Yeah. So genetic genealogy has been used in the middle child, his daughter's case, too, to try to track down who she is and who her mother might be because her mother's probably another victim. But that's gnarly stuff, man. Like, that's so gnarly. Like, killing kids is already like, dude, but it's your own? Like, that just, it's unfathomable that you would take your own flesh's life. Yeah. So genetic genealogy has been used in her case, too, to try to track down her mother's side of the family and to try to identify her and her mother, who likely is another victim, but may not be. You know, they don't really know because they don't know who she is. The closest they've gotten is a really distant relative in Pearl River County, Mississippi. They may have found that her six-time great-grandfathers were Thomas Deadhorse Mitchell or William Livings, Dead horse. Time out. His his middle name is Dead Horse? Yeah. It's uh, in quotes, so I don't know if it's like a nickname or a middle name. Yeah. I wonder how if he had many horses or <laughs> many dead horses or whatever. Yeah. The other common ancestor that they found for her is a man named William Livings. And both of these, Thomas Mitchell and William Livings, were born in the early 1800s. So it's like not even close. But it's the closest thing they have so far. So they've been trying to focus their investigations in Pearl River County, Mississippi. So if you live in Pearl River County, Mississippi, or have relatives from there, even if you're not missing anyone in your family, you could be the piece they need to link the two families together. So please upload your DNA to GEDmatch. Please do that. I mean, thankfully, uh, my yeah, my info's in there thanks to you. But I mean, yeah, there's really no reason anymore for us not to have all this stuff solved and, and just wrapped up and done. Like, there's yeah. not. There's there's not. And there's so much that they figured out in literally the last like five to seven years about Terry Rasmussen and his crimes. But there's a lot more they don't know. Like, there's I'm still sure. more to find out. Um, no doubt about that. So, anyway. 
that's it. The end. We still haven't figured out how to wait to end this podcast. Well, now that they've taken the DNA Doe project away from, or no, I guess they haven't taken that. They've taken Amazon Smile away from you. Right. I'm telling you, you got to tell people like, don't forget to upload your DNA to GEDmatch. It doesn't quite flow as nicely as don't forget to change your Amazon Smile, but you know, yeah, maybe maybe you can reword it. But I think that's kind of where we need. Yeah, to Yeah, we'll get it. used to it. Yeah, we'll break down. But seriously, if you've taken a consumer DNA test, just upload it to GEDmatch. And if you have any like questions about like why that could be a problem, email us. I'd be happy to try to convince you to do it. And 100% if you have a question about it, it will be Erica responding. So you don't have to deal with, yeah. worry about dealing with me and my dumb ass. Well, because some people have privacy concerns and, and I get it. At first, it was hard to understand too, but it's easy to understand now. I don't get it, honestly. Like, who cares? Yeah, if you don't have anything to hide, put it in there. People think that they're way more important than they are. Just nobody cares who you are. Just put your shit in there and we can catch some criminals or identify John and Jane Doe's like well my thing is I know a lot of people don't want to do it because they don't want to involuntarily inform on a family member like they don't want to be a snitch and it's like I'm sorry if I had a family member who was a serial killer darn tootin I want to inform on them darn tootin we're doing it yeah yeah imagine the story after that like yeah no that was my cousin and they killed people (laughs) not even just that but like you want them to not be able to keep doing that. Like, if you do love them, you don't want them to keep killing people. Correct. <laughs> yeah, I don't want- I can't believe there's people that would find out that their family is a murderer or a serial killer or a rapist and they wouldn't It's want no to- different than your family member being a drug addict or an alcoholic or something and being like, hey, we need to fix this. It's no different. They have a problem. We need to stop that problem. Or it's going to hurt other people. If they get drunk or do drugs and get in a car, that can hurt other people. If they kill people as their side hobby. Yeah, I'm snitching. There's no no difference. I'm saving lives. I mean, I think there's a difference between murder and drugs. Like, I wouldn't snitch on a family member for a drug problem. But, like, for a murder? Hell yeah, I'm going straight to the But you would help a family member who had a drug problem. This is how... This is how you help somebody with a murdering problem. You tell the police. I wouldn't tell the police, hey, you know, this person's drinking a ton or doing a bunch of drugs. But I would call the police if I saw somebody get in the car who just drank a ton. Like, hey, that that guy's going to kill somebody. The point is that that's the only thing that I've heard. That's the only argument that I've heard, though, against privacy is like they don't want to snitch on a family member. And it's like they're not using this database to solve, you know, petty thefts. Or, you know, stolen cars. They're using this for violent crimes only. So it's like, are you kidding me? You wouldn't snitch on your family member if they were a serial killer or a serial rapist? Get out of here. I'm calling immediately <laughs> if I find that out. Right? I, I and then I'm doing more. an episode on our podcast about it. Completely right. So anyway, if you have any questions, though, I would love to try to convince you to do it or talk you through how to do it if you don't know how to do it. And if you do have any questions about it, you can email us at from crime to crime podcast at gmail.com and put in the subject line for Erica's eyes only. If you have anything else, you can go to our Instagram at From Crime to Crime, our TikTok at From to Crime to Crime, Twitter at From Crime with the number two crime. I think that's it. Well, this was a long one and a complicated one. Thank you for sticking with me. I really enjoyed this one. You were right. This one was worth uh, waking up early for and, you know, having to get ready and, and stretch and all that kind of stuff. So, no, I'm 
<laughs> I'm glad we did this. This was all this was all good. Well, I will talk to you. I was going to say next week, which will be true on the podcast, but I will talk to you next hour in real life. I was going to say, like, <laughs> it's pretty like we didn't talk last night, like after like, I don't know, six o'clock. And I was like, I wonder what Erica's doing. I was like, I'll just let her have the night off. I'll let her maybe hang out with her husband <laughs> for a little bit. Maybe, you know, not worry about what I'm doing because Christine. No, I was working on the notes for this podcast. Oh. Well, Christine fell asleep at uh, 6.45, so I was hanging with the kids last night. But Nice. Anyway, well, this was great. I'm glad we did this. Um, thank you for All telling right. me the story. You're welcome. I love you. Okay. I love you, too. Okay. Bye. Bye.